Thank you so much, Keith. It's so lovely to be with you. Rosie and I have been eagerly awaiting this weekend, and it's a particular pleasure because uh, the excitement of church planting is beginning to grab us in Horsham as well, and we, we are going to be planting out from our church in the next uh, probably eight, 18 months or so, two other congregations. Now, we're not a huge church. We're about 150, so planting out is going to be a, a huge challenge. But, you know, that is the strategy for taking the nation for God. When you read through the book of Acts, it was going from place to place, planting churches, and they grew very quickly. Just a very quick story. My, my grandfather was a great hero of mine because he moved in revival in the early days of the Salvation Army. And uh, Booth and the Salvation Army sent him to the city of Leeds to plant a Salvation Army, to plant a Salvation Army church. And uh, he and the fellow officer lived in a street. It was before he was married. And everybody in the street got saved. Every single person in the street got saved and the council changed the name of the street to Salvation Row. Now, I've got a similar vision for the street that I live in, which is aptly named Church Lane. Rosie and I live in a village, the village of Southwater, which is about two miles outside of Horsham and is probably one of the fastest growing uh, areas in the country. It's the second biggest village in the country. So it's, it's growing and expanding. Now during the early days of lockdown, do you remember when we all used to go out on our doorsteps and clap the NHS? Well, we, we've lived in, in our house for about eight years or so, and uh, for the first few years of our living there, we had a kind of passing acquaintance with neighbours. We'd talk a bit, we'd uh, um, say hi, lovely day, but there was not anything in it, any real depth of um, knowing them. But when the clap began to start, we were beginning to realise that these neighbours were actually people, and uh, we began to uh, do the clap and, and all of that. And then, quite early on, I got this inspiration. I wrote a song, and it went to the tune of Obladee. Do you know that one? Remember that one? And I got my guitar out, so as we were doing the clap, I sang uh, C-O-V-I-D-V-I-R-U-S, and wrote a song about the, uh, the virus, and played the guitar, and neighbours started to begin to gather round. Well, this developed, so the next thing I did, I put the piano out there and ended up getting the PA out there and um, over several weeks, and you remember Captain Tom and, uh, and all of that, got my trumpet out and uh, we created what in the Greek language is called an ecclesia. And an ecclesia is a gathering of people for any particular reason. It can be uh, a political ecclesia. It can be a musical ecclesia. It's just a gathering of people. But it's the word that's used in the scriptures for the church. So when you see the word church in your English Bible, it's usually ecclesia, 
Not always, but usually. So it's a gathering of people. Now, I've got a vision that this ecclesia that we have in our road, which Rosie and I pastor, we care for. Now, they don't know that they're in a church yet, but I'm, be <laughs> but I'm believing God for it, and we've, we've uh, prayed for people, we've shared the gospel with people, and uh, we've done other things. We've developed it in the summer. We put on, I put on a jazz concert in a neighbor's garden and uh, gathered a few more around, and we're beginning to infiltrate into people's lives. And I'm sure that's how the early church planted their churches. They invited people into each other's homes. They gave them hospitality. Rosie makes cakes for all the neighbors and goes and distributes them like uh, uh, every week. And uh, it, it, there's a, a real kind of sense of community developing. So we're in Ecclesia. Rosie and I are their pastors and we're hoping that there will come a point where they do actually get saved and we are what we would recognize as a church. So that's my, that's my vision. Now that's how churches get planted. So let me encourage you, start an ecclesia in your street. Okay, well I'm going to read from 1 Peter and chapter 2 and it's a classic passage of scripture about the church. It is probably the clearest uh, passage in the whole of the New Testament. I mean, the book of Ephesians is a great book about the church, but it is 1 Peter chapter 2 that gives us um, a sense of what the church is. Now, I don't know if you've ever tried to witness to people. I hope you have. But one of the things that I find people often say to me when I'm talking to them about Jesus, and uh, you usually start off talking about going to church because that's kind of, people understand that. And uh, one of the things people often say to me, well, surely you don't have to go to church to be a Christian. And they'll say things like, well, Jesus Christ is okay. He was a great teacher, great philosopher, great man, but so was Gandhi and so were all sorts of other people. Surely you don't have to go to church to be a Christian. And in fact, I saw an interview with Mick Jagger and a journalist, and he was talking about Jesus Christ. And Mick Jagger himself said, well, um, Jesus Christ was all right, but I don't get it about going to church and uh, the whole kind of concept of Christianity as such. And a lot of people think like that. But in a sense, it's the wrong issue because we don't actually go to church. We are the church. And one of the lines in this uh, passage in 1 Peter 2, which I'm going to read about, uh, when it starts to describe the church, it says, as you come to him. As you come to him. So what about switching our thinking from I'm going to church to I am going to him? Now, of course, he is always with us. He never leaves us. He never forsakes us. But there is a sense when we come together as the people of God, the gathered people of God, we are coming to him. 
Now, I love it when the worship leader is prophetic and when Dave led us in that uh, great uh, Wren Collective song at the beginning, I thought, this is such a fantastic song. And then his prayer was full of the content of my sermon. So great, Dave. Well done. (laughs) Okay, let's read 1 Peter and chapter 2. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honour is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offence. They stumble because they disobey the word as they are destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvellous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Behold, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honourable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now, this is a wonderful passage of Scripture. It's rich of, with allusions, to, not illusions, allusions, to things in the Old Testament, prophets, priests, temples, people. It's got all of those things and the presence of God. And if you, I could spend hours unpacking this. Don't worry, you will get your Sunday lunch. But honestly, it is so full of glorious truth. Now I'm going to pick out five important truths that I hope will spark something in you to make you study this passage in greater depth, get a good commentary and read this passage and let it be absorbed into your spirit because it's key to church planting. It's key to building the church and gives us a solid theology and practice of what church 
should be like. So I'm going to put this under five headings and make some comments about each heading and it jumps in and out of the passage because we're taking lines out from here and there but I want you as I do that to see the passage as a whole so that's how I'm approaching this. So the first heading that I'm going to give you is chosen and called. As preachers often do I'm using alliteration to help you remember. So everybody say chosen and called. Chosen and called. Okay, so that's what we are. So we begin at verse 4 where it says, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Now I'm going to stop mid-sentence there. Okay, we come to a living stone who is chosen and precious. Now that living stone is Jesus. And really it's a, a reference to the Lord Jesus in the Old Testament. Now this may, might seem a bit strange because we see Jesus as the revealed word of God, the Logos, the word made flesh, and uh, he, he is a New Testament figure. But Jesus is God. God is this amazing, lives in this amazing concept that we call the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit. One God, three persons, and I've not yet found a theologian anywhere who's been able to explain it clearly in a way that we can all understand it. We, all we can do is stand back and wonder and say, well, that's amazing. God, this is how God has revealed himself. So, in 1 Corinthians 10... Paul talks about the children of Israel in the wilderness feeding on the manna and drinking from the rock, the stone. And Paul says, and that rock was Christ. So Jesus was alive as the living stone in the Old Testament. It's a great ministry, that mystery, we don't get it all, but Jesus has always been God and always will be God. Now some theologians have stated, and I've even read one or two books recently, where uh, Jesus did not become the Christ until he was baptised and the Spirit came upon him. I'm just saying that is theological nonsense. Jesus has always been, he is the eternal Son of God. He is the living stone. And it says he is chosen and precious. Now, in what theologians call the eternal covenant, there was an agreement between Father, Son, and Spirit that there would be a people who would be a bride for his Son. And that as God spoke the word, the Son would articulate it because he is the word, and the Spirit would accomplish it. And so this great plan of salvation, which has been in eternity, is now outworked in our planet. And God, in the Garden of Eden, sets out this plan, and it's finally accomplished when Jesus comes to the earth, chosen by the Father, 
Now, he's co-equal with the Father, but it says here he was chosen to fulfill this part of the plan. So Jesus, when he's on the earth, says, I'm doing the will of the Father. He is chosen and precious to God. But he was rejected. Chosen and precious to God, but rejected by humanity. But then, here is the amazing miracle. As you come to him, so those of us who are now saved, and we are chosen by God, we come to him. The mystery is that as we are in Christ, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built together. So, Jesus is the living stone, despised and rejected by men, but through his work on the cross, his resurrection and his exaltation, we are also chosen in him. Now, I don't know if you used to sing an old chorus, I have decided to follow Jesus. No, you didn't. He chose you. (laughs) Now, that is such a secure thing for us to know that we are chosen. We are always chosen. We never stop being chosen. Nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. So we are chosen to be living stones as well. So just as Jesus is precious, we are precious to him. And so nothing can remove us from that. Now, as I was thinking about this, I thought, what is it that makes a stone precious? Well, and there'll be some pictures come up, I hope. A few years ago, I was in Washington, D.C., and I was taken to the Aerospace Museum. It was a great experience. And I actually have touched the moon. Now, some people think the moon's touched me, but that's another story. I have actually touched the moon. It's a little bit of black stone. Now, that black stone, the moon, to me, I don't own it, but it's a very precious memory. I've actually touched the moon, representing, I guess, man's great scientific achievements and all of that. It was a precious thing to me. Now, many of you will remember when the Berlin Wall came down. I had a friend in Berlin the day that started to be dismantled. And he brought home for me a piece of the Berlin Wall. Now, it's just a dirty piece of concrete. But it is precious to me because, again, it represents a political ideology being broken down. So its intrinsic value is not in that that particular piece of concrete is precious in itself. It's precious because of what it represents. Now, I have a very good friend. Her name is Annie. And she's a really remarkable lady. And the last time I preached this, I actually did an interview with her. Um, Annie is a swimmer and she recently swam the channel. It was an amazing achievement. And uh, 
I asked her, why did you do it? And she said, well, you remember the film Chariots of Fire where uh, Eric Liddell said um, that uh, he feels the pleasure of God when, when he runs. She said, I feel the pleasure of God when I swim. And so she trained really hard. She swam lake, across Lake Windermere to train and she really worked hard to do it. So I then asked her, was it a battle? She said, was it a battle? It was a serious battle. It was a battle mentally. It was a battle physically. It was a battle emotionally. It was a very, very hard thing to do. And she even got stung by a jellyfish in the channel. So it was, she really, really fought to get across the channel. The first thing she did when she got to Calais was to look down on the beach and pick up a stone. And I hope you can see the picture of her holding up the stone. It's like she fought for that stone. <laughs> and it's precious to her. And as she was saying that, I thought that is exactly what Jesus has done for us to make us precious. Now, it may be this morning that you feel a bit washed up, like a pebble on the beach. It may be that you feel separate from everything else. It may be that you just feel like an inanimate, useless object. People do feel like that sometimes. But I want to tell you this morning that Jesus has fought and battled and won to make you a precious stone. He fought the powers of darkness. He fought the religious leaders of the time. He went through mental, emotional and spiritual battles to win our salvation. And this morning, our captain, our saviour, in fighting all the powers of darkness as he suffered on the cross, comes through to victory, rises again and holds you in his hand. You're a precious stone. Hallelujah. Now, the thing is that that precious stone is to be built. And so we are to be built together. Now, I'm going to come back to that in a moment, but go on to the next point about being separated and sanctified. Jesus was, in a sense, separated from humanity in the sense that he never sinned, but he totally identifies with us in the fact that he is totally human and tempted in every area as we are. So he was truly and properly God and truly and properly man. But he lived a life of total holiness. Now, if I use the word holiness, I wonder what conjures up in your mind. You, you know, Sometimes people think of holiness as having some great holy glow over you and some big cheesy grin and, you know, being your, you know, your typical charismatic Christian. No, holiness 
It's relational. Holiness is about living in harmony with your brothers and sisters. You see, this all starts off, so put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Now, that is not a definitive list. It is a sample list of the kind of things that we do to each other. And Peter says, put aside all that, put aside all relational issues so that you can be holy. So holiness is relational. Holiness is also corporate. We are to be a holy nation. Now, I'm half Welsh, and when it comes to rugby, I am definitely a Wales supporter because the Welsh are generally better at it. Now, when it, when it comes to soccer, I'm an England supporter because my dad was English, my mum was Welsh. So I identify with both. Now, at Twickenham, when the Welsh supporters sing, it makes me cry. When they sing Wales, Wales, and guide me, O thou great Jehovah, it's like a people become a nation. There is something corporate that happens. Now, when we gather as a people together, we identify as being a holy nation, and there is a testimony in our presence together that God owns and blesses, and he manifests his presence. So we are a holy people. So it's corporate. It's also personal. So Peter goes, goes on to say, abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. So personal holiness is really important. Now that's a whole talk in itself and I could open up on that but just take that in. So we are separated and we are sanctified. Now sanctification is the process by which God makes us holy. Now here is the dichotomy. When you become a Christian, you are given a righteousness that is yours. So wherever you're prodded, you're righteous, you're clothed in it. Nothing can change that. You are inwardly righteous. God declares you righteous. Great news for us. So when we stand before his throne on the day of judgment, we will stand as God's righteous people. Now why are we righteous? We're righteous because Jesus is righteous and we are in Christ. And nothing can destroy that. You can't earn it. You can't work for it. You can't go to church so many times to earn brownie points so that you're righteous. No, it's totally a gift. Well, even if I sin, yes, you are still righteous. Now, although that is true, you and I both know we don't always live like that. There are things that go on in our lives. We do commit sin, so I'm not preaching sinless perfection. Yes, we do sin. We do slip up, but God still sees us as righteous. But there is a process of sanctification in which we become more holy and more righteous. As we, so it's a gift, but God works that into us. 
So we are sanctified by the blood of Jesus. So God, through his blood, through the blood of Jesus, sanctifies us, cleanses us. That's why John says that if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all, all unrighteousness. And it says that, 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 um, that through his blood... We keep in fellowship. So if we, have, if we have fellowship one with another and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin, we're sanctified by the word of God. When you read the word of God, there is a sanctifying effect of it. So when Peter says, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up, the Greek word there for spiritual spiritual milk is, is kakaya and uh, it, it's uh, uh, no sorry I've got the wrong word it's logikos logikos so the milk of the word is logikos it's the same word same root word as logos and it's the same word that is used in Romans 12 where Paul says present your bodies a living sacrifice which is your reasonable service of worship it's the same word that's used now what is this saying it's saying that there is a spiritual dimension to the word of God that's essentially what it's saying and it's like milk like an infant needs milk it's not saying we're babes in Christ what it's saying is just as an infant needs milk so as a Christian you need the milk of God's word and there is a sanctifying effect in, in your life. And we're sanctified by our circumstances, the pressures and trials of life. Sanctify us, we grow through those trials and God will put you, now here's, here's a thought, okay, God will bless you or afflict you with people you deserve. <laughs> okay, so sometimes... Those sort of situations mean that we are that God's dealing with us and our reactions, and we sanctify ourselves. So John, John says, when he appears, we shall be like him, we shall see him as he is. If that is your hope, then purify yourself. So you sanctify yourself as well. Again, I could open up a lot more. So we're separated and sanctified. Now the next point I want to make is that we are built and bonded. We are not just a pile of stones. God shapes us through our sanctification and builds us together. You know, back in the 70s when the charismatic movement started, we used to sing a song, We Are One in the Bond of Love. And uh, it was a bit cheesy, really, because we used to all join hands and have a big cheesy grin on our face and all go like this and sing, we are one in the bond of love, we've joined our spirits with the Spirit of God, we're one in the bond of love. I can't really imagine us singing it quite in that way today. It wouldn't go down in our culture. But the truth remains the same. We are built together, we are shaped together. When it says in Acts 2 that the Lord added daily such as were saved, that word added there has the sense of being built together. So we're not just saved, we're built into community. 
So, as Graham Kendrick's song says, different faces, different races. We're built together. And so we are built and bonded. Now, that is what the temple is. So the Old Testament temple is a symbol of the spiritual temple that we now are. So when Paul says to the Ephesians that we are being built into a temple, that we are fitly framed together, he puts it rather quaintly, fitly framed together into a temple, the dwelling place of God in the spirit. So we are the temple. The temple is not a building in New Covenant. So those people who think that the Jewish temple is going to be rebuilt and make a big thing of that, no, we're the temple. It's already being built. Hallelujah. And we contain the presence of God. It's very interesting in that Ephesians verse that the word for temple, naios, is the same word that is used in the Old Testament for the Holy of Holies. So we are in the Holy of Holies. So we are built and bonded. The next, we are praising and proclaiming that we are called out of darkness into his marvellous light that we may proclaim his excellencies. So that proclamation is praise. Praise always has content. Don't go around saying praise the Lord, praise the Lord, praise the Lord all the time unless you are actually praising him about something that he's doing or about his character. Praise always has content. So you read the Psalms, it says praise the Lord and it gives you ten reasons why. So we praise the Lord. And there is an evangelistic dimension to our praise because when we declare who God is in our praise and worship wells up within us, the gospel cannot help but be proclaimed because the gospel is the centre of our praise. What God has done for us in Christ by his spirit, that is the content of our praise. And I, all the time when I'm teaching worship leaders, I say, make sure your worship has content. So singing Hosanna or praise the Lord or hallelujah over and over and over again becomes a mantra and not praise. Do you see the point? It's very important that our praise has content. So that's what we do. And then the final point, and here I want to land it, is in the last few verses where Peter is exhorting the people to keep their conduct honourable among the Gentiles and to make sure that they are living like this people. And then it talks about glorifying God on the day of visitation. So from vision to visitation. You see, it's all very well having a vision, but a vision without a visitation can become a dream that will fade. So if you've got a vision for church planting, that's great. If you've got a vision to be a church like this, and I hope you have, that is great. But without visitation, we will never accomplish it. And I believe that there is a need for the church to be crying out to God for a visitation of the Spirit. Now, God is always with us, 
But when Peter, and I wonder if this was in his mind, going back to the time in Acts 4 when he's preaching, he says, repent therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out and he will send Jesus who must be received into heaven and there will be times of refreshing from the presence of the Lord. That encapsulates, encapsulates 2,000 years of church history in one little sentence. Times of visitation from the presence of the Lord. And our country is in such a desperate state of despair and hopelessness and evil that only a visitation will actually counteract it. And I pray for that every day. I cry to God hour after hour for visitation. And it's there in the passage. It's all there. So, church, you are chosen and called. You're separated and sanctified. You need to be built and bonded. You need to be a people praising and proclaiming and turn your vision into visitation. Amen? Amen. Let me just pray for you. Father, I want to pray that you will come in visitation over these weeks and months ahead into this church. I pray that you will come and build the kind of church that Peter's talking about here to bring glory to your name, to be a testimony, a church that is praising and proclaiming, a church that is holy, a church that is a royal priesthood with everybody feeling that they're part of it, built and bonded together. Lord, only you can do that, but Lord, only we can respond and we want to respond. And we say, Lord Jesus, build your church and heal this land. Amen.